So I know some of you uh, were not here last week. Many of you are aware that this is the second week of a three-week series talking about a particular group of teachings called the three marks or the three characteristics of existence. And it's an important teaching in, in Buddhism. And so we're going to continue on with that tonight. But first, I just wanted to ask, since a few people wanted some meditation instructions, I just want to open it up to anyone if anyone has any questions either about... I mean, those are pretty basic instructions, but um, really that's all you need. It can take you quite far. Either about those instructions or any questions about meditation practice, if anybody wants, we could take a few minutes if there are any questions. Meditating when you're lying flat, that's fine to do that. Um, really, the only reason for sitting upright is, is more just the energy and it tends to bring more alertness and awakeness. Um, that's all. There's really no preference. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, we, as we're going to talk about tonight, you know, we come to meditation practice, probably all of us, for many different reasons. Um, some of us may have some idea about you know, Buddhism talks about things like enlightenment or nirvana or liberation. So some of us may have some ideas of that. And probably for many of us, uh, we may not think in those terms, but whatever it is we're looking for in our meditation, I'm coming back to, to your question. Uh, whatever we want, we want more peace, happiness, calmness, less stress, just a way to help make life work better. You know, there's many different reasons that different people give. Uh, and one of the beauties about this meditation practice is, is that we come, whatever, for whatever reason we come to it, it works. We plug into it on whatever level we want, and the practice works. It does help us become less stressful, more calm, more peaceful, more awake, more loving. You know, just add in whatever you want, and. It continues to open and open and open, not just the sitting meditation, but all of these Dharma teachings and Dharma practice, whatever it looks like for each of us. And we just bring it into whatever level works for us in our life. We can do that in any posture. Is a position to become more awake, more loving, more conscious, more free. And the Buddha specifically talked, in particular talking about even ultimate liberation, uh, any uh, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down, these four postures. And some of you know the story that actually um, uh, his, the Buddha's cousin and attendant for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life was Ananda. And Ananda's the only one whose the story goes was actually... Who knows if these stories are true, but the story is, is that he became fully enlightened. He's the only one who, who, who did not become enlightened in one of those four postures. It was said that he, was, he had been meditating and meditating and he had spent um, so much of his time t- uh, being the Buddha's attendant that he wasn't able to meditate as much as many of the other monks and nuns. So he had, you know, the, the stories are they're all enlightened, but he was not able to attain that. And so he was getting discouraged and he had been working really hard and hard. And then he finally decided at night to lie down and take a rest. And so it said in that moment of he, and he must have had quite a meditation practice anyway. He'd been working and working and in that moment of kind of letting go. There's something in that letting go and relaxing. And he went from sitting and he was on his way down to lie down. And as before he <laughs> his head didn't hit the pillow yet. He got it, whatever the big it <laughs> That's the story anyway. But I think the idea for us is that, you know, so he got it kind of in a tilted angle. So he was heading down, right? So the idea being really any posture. And actually, um, I was just last year, I was sitting a very long retreat, um, a, almost a year long retreat. And Shiloh, who we've been mentioning here, was 
uh, there for about 10 months, too. And she has some, some of you know her, actually has some back problems. And so she would often, in the meditation hall, she would have a little, she'd be stretched out there, lying down, and that would be her practice. And from talking with her, she had a pretty powerful retreat. So anyway, maybe that might be more than you were asking for. Any other practice questions? Yeah, Hugh. The question about um, attending to the breath. Um, for most people, either the inhalation or the exhalation is much more evident. What are your recommendations about that part of the breath that's the least evident? Well, that's a great question. and. Um, one thing you have to know about any style of meditation, and particularly breath meditation, is whoever you ask, many people have many different um, instructions and suggestions. Uh, did all of you hear the question he was asking? Did you hear back there his question? He was asking about uh, breath meditation in particular, and he was pointing out that often certain aspects of the breath might be more easily seen and felt and known, like maybe the inhalation more than the exhalation. And so you're asking about what's the part that's how to approach the the, the, asp, the parts of the breath that are the least evident. Is that where you're? Yeah. So I'll just add, put a few thoughts and maybe some other people here might have some thoughts on that, too. Um, I would say there's not a part of the breath that we're supposed to feel. And. For me, what's been very powerful is just the process of engaging with the breath and making effort without making stress about, uh, getting stressed out about it is certainly a number one thing. And there's a place where you can work very, very hard to really connect with the breath, put effort, directing the attention, but also keeping it without getting stressed out about it. We just be kind of relaxed. Somehow there's a place where those two can go together. And in doing that, the starting place is is that we're just going to see what we see. And even in the part of the breath that we see or can feel the clearest and the easiest, even there when we start out, there's many, many layers that will reveal themselves as we deepen in the breath. That just aren't, there's much more than meets the untrained eye, as many people here know who have done a lot of work in the meditation. So that's number one. So then there's a, there's a few different approaches that you can take. If you really notice this as a part of the breath that's not... Well, let me ask you a question. Are you talking about is it like that's just not seen or is it actually a problem or, or is it just... What, could you say a little more? Um, that if you are really trying to pay attention to the details of the sensation, for that part of the breath that's fairly evident, it's pretty easy to stay with the moment by moment Right. So that's important. And uh, did you hear that, that? That when there's not much feeling there, and that's for any sensations we're working at, it's easy to space out there. What I found in my own practice is, is that as the concentration and the mindfulness continue to deepen, that um, the, you're more naturally present through whatever's going on, including knowing that there's no sensation. In other words, that can be known. The lack of sensation can be known very clearly, and that's just what is true in the moment. That's one aspect. Now, it may be that sometimes it's useful and skillful to rev up the energy and kind of and try to penetrate more with the mind and look harder and sort of make that effort to see if you can get some sensation there a little bit. And that can be useful, and, and there's times when probably all of us might want to do that from time to time. And that's in general revving up the energy. If we get that too far out of balance, then we get too much striving and repressing too hard. And we can get sort of goal-oriented and, and it can actually bring stress into the practice. So the time, then there's the place where we kind of back off and just it's more not a sense of doing and directing, but a sense of allowing. And just allow it to reveal itself. And then you just see what you see, and we get, and, and that takes out the the striving or the stress part. If we take that too far out of balance, 
then we're not trying too hard and we kind of can get lazy and complacent and then we may need to hit back the other way. So it's that kind of that tension arc between pressing hard and looking and doing and going in to, to get that sensation and the other of allowing and being and just letting it to reveal the more passive aspects and how those two are in balance. And, you know, you're just going to see what you can see. Sometimes there's no sensations, right? Now, another thing that one can do also with the breath, for example, another place is like, so I work at the, at the, at the area of the nose. So there's in, clear, out. And then there tends to be a pause for me between the, at the end of the out breath before the next in breath. That's a place you can tend to space out. As your concentration and mindfulness deepen, you can start to notice more. Notice the space. And if you need to, find another anchor place. So maybe it can be, you know, the butt on the cushion or your hands on the knees are folded in your lap or something else. So you can add, if you need to, you can actually make it a little more active and in, out, touching. In, out, touching or something. So maybe if there's really a space, you could find an anchor somewhere else. All, there's so many... I don't know, what, what do you think? It's not one... Of it's, it's a matter of interest. For example, one of the things is, for me is that the nostril is, more, is the most strong sensation on the in-breath of the chest, belly, or nostril. It's the least strong on the exhalation. The others, there's more sensation. So the question arises, should I put my attention on the nostril, which is the strongest on the inhalation, Right. Well, that's the whole question right there. The, the reason to use more anchors is if you need it, if it's creating more scattered, of course, it's the wrong thing to do. And, and by the way, I should say for all these instructions, it's, this is a dynamic process. You know, last week we were talking about change as the first characteristic of existence. Uh, and that goes for our meditation practice, too. What it, it's always changing, growing, unfolding. And what's needed is always changing, too. So there may be times when we need more anchors. My, if you just had one answer, my own take on it, and this has been true for me, is I would stay with the breath, with the in and the out, and to keep the tension there for the continuity and, and really bring up the energy a little to really look closer. And if you don't get anything, you don't get anything. That's the way I would tend to approach it, because I find it keeps that continuity of the concentration better. And, you know, I don't know what other teachers would say, but I, I don't, you know, it's fine to use anchors and you know, it's what works, right? I don't know. At the nose, stay there and really go deep there. Go deep there. Uh, Yeah, yeah. There's no right or wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, there's no right or wrong. We just experience what we experience in the practice. Let me just say this. I, you know, as the time's moving on, and we want to spend some time, also, we'll we'll switch the topic here. But I, uh, I just want to point out that, you know, the breath, when looked at from one level, can seem like, you know, it's boring, right? We're talking about even deck questions getting a little more subtle about, you know, looking at it this way versus that way. And um, there is so much just in the simple breath. 
Actually, everything one needs is contained right there. In the sense that, as an experience, all the qualities that are necessary for the heart and mind to become liberated are there. It's changing. It's in, the three characteristics, for those of you who weren't here last time, are the first one's normally called impermanence. That's not the best word, but it's constant change. The second is what is normally called dukkha, and that's one of these words that's probably best left untranslated. It, it tends to be translated as suffering, but it's actually much more than that. It's, also, it's really, I don't know if this is a, a real word, but unsatisfactoriness, which we're going to move into tonight. And the third being the selfless nature of all phenomenon. The whole, you know, Buddhist, you don't have a self, which we're going to get into next time. All these are called characteristics of existence because those qualities are inherent in any experience. And they're there in the breath too, which is the reason why for those who choose to, just the breath meditation alone is said to take you as far in the practice as you want. Along with many other styles of practice that are given. So I, there are people who weren't here last time and so we're going to take just, this is going to be the two minute quick review from last time. What we talked about last time were, the, were in the Buddhist teachings of two levels of reality. There's what's called ultimate reality and conditioned or relative reality. Ultimate reality in Buddhism, depending on the school of Buddhism, sometimes it gets talked about more or less. But basically it would be the equivalent of other religions when they tend to use words like God, uh, ultimate truth, highest truth, the great spirit, um, highest self. It's kind of that deepest, it's hard to find good words for it, but that would be trying to talk about sort of an unmasked, unmanifest reality beyond this conventional reality that we live in. So the Buddha did in the earliest Buddhist teachings, uh, in the tradition that this practice comes out of, the Buddha did talk about it a little bit, pointed to it, but tended to kind of shy away from trying to talk about this ultimate reality too much because being beyond the conventional reality, it's beyond the limitations of the human mind, it's beyond the limitations of language. And anything we would say about that is going to fall short. As a result, the Buddha tended more to talk about conventional reality. And it's within this realm of conventional reality then that these three characteristics apply. That's what we're talking about. We're not trying to talk about this ultimate reality. So what we're saying is in the world of any, any experience one can have, or even oneself, has this quality of impermanence. There's nothing that lasts. That's what we're talking about, impermanence. And it goes further in that there's, there's really, when you look deeper, and these are more deep meditative states or, or, or realizations, that, that there's nothing but constant change going on. It's not that things are here for a while, stick around for a while, and then are gone. That's what it looks like on one level. But actually, there's never a, there's never a time when things are still. Everything, there's just constant change. In the physical world, we know that thoughts are constantly coming and going. Our minds, our perceptions of things, our bodies are constantly changing. If you were to have an electron microscope and could look at this deeply, you'd see it's not solid. It's all empty space, just about. And changing energy patterns. So, that's the idea of this characteristic called impermanence. The one we're going to move into tonight in, in a bit is uh, the second, which is dukkha, suffering or unsatisfactoriness. That's what is saying basically 
and we'll come back to this in more detail, but it's basically saying that there is no experience we can have in this conventional world that is going to ultimately be satisfying. That we can have, we all know we can have satisfying experiences in the moment or for a, for a time, but eventually, if for no other reason, because of the first characteristic of change and impermanence, they're not going to last forever. It's important to emphasize what got said last week, and this is very, very important. A lot of people hear these teachings and they think, wow, you know, the Buddha, he's bumming me out. The guy's like a pessimist because he could, why couldn't he focus also on joy and happiness and love and interconnection and all these wonderful things? The Buddha was not a pessimist nor was he an optimist. The Buddha would say he was just a realist. And he, the Buddha was asking us just to take, not, not to deny happiness. Not at all. Just like there's dukkha suffering, there is sukha, happiness. We all know that. Hopefully, all of us have some amount of happiness. And it's a mix. We all know that. We don't need the Buddha talking to us about that. The whole reason to even think about these characteristics of existence is the problem that of the human condition as laid out in Buddhist teachings is that we tend to grasp on, cling to, try to hold on to things. We don't want things to change. We don't want our bodies to grow old, for example. Right? Nobody wants that. And to get sick and to die. Well, you ever notice that I've never heard the body ask me my opinion, whether it was okay. It just goes right ahead and does what it's going to do. And sometimes the body's healthy and doing well, and sometimes it's sick. When it gets sick, we think there's a problem, that something went wrong. It's just what happens having a body. It's not wrong. It's not bad. I talked about last week about, you know, looking in the mirror, I'm 52, and just looking and thinking, where did my youth go? What happened? You turn around, it's gone. I mean, you know, hopefully I have some vigor left and everything, and, right? 52, I guess, you know, I'm definitely at least middle-aged, right? There's no doubting about it. Nothing went wrong. It's not bad. So, what the Buddha is saying is, is to the extent that we don't come to terms with and just face the reality of change, we're going to suffer. And it's what keeps us bound, trying to hold on. You know, the analogy that's used, you've probably all heard this, is, you know, it's like trying to hold water in your hands. And, of course, you can hold it, but, you know, it's dripping through and eventually it's going to drip out, no matter how much you struggle and try. And at some point, you know, you you just... And there's a lot of effort we put into holding on there. It's painful. Right? So we don't want to become morbid or morose or pessimistic or dark or brooding about it. It's actually quite liberating, and this is the important point, is that, is that in that letting go that happens, there is a real inner freedom that arises, and I don't know what else to say about it, but um, many people who have done meditation practice or whatever your practices are, maybe in other religious traditions too besides Buddhism, know this. That in the non-clinging or in the letting go, there is, you know, it's the cliche we talk about in meditation of inner peace and inner happiness. And that starts just to arise. So we get this, it taps us back to that unconditioned. The happiness that's not conditioned, meaning it's not so dependent upon having to have it a certain way. Right? So what happens is we start to learn that um, happiness and pleasure that comes, we enjoy it, we feel it, we fully experience it. As a matter of fact, we, everyone who's done much meditation at all knows we start to experience it more than ever because we're really more present for it. 
rather than how most of us spend our lives, which is either you know worrying about or some thoughts of the future or dragging the past along with us, and you know our minds are scattered and we're not just present. When we gather together a certain just a certain we say concentration, but just a certain collectedness of mind that enables us to be present in the present moment. One of the things that happens is is that we start to see more about it. We're actually experiencing our lives more. Perfect, just simple example is, you know, um, I'm someone who always used to, you know, eat my breakfast reading the paper and had the news on, and and you don't have to stop doing that. It's fine to do. I still like to do that. But the point is, is that, you know, I don't even. Next thing I know, where did that bowl of cereal go? Missed it. Just missed it. That's, that's kind of a silly example, who cares, but there's a lot of our lives that we miss, right? It's that whole thing, where did my youth go? You know, if I was paying attention, I could be able to tell you exactly where it went. But one day I looked in the mirror and was like, damn, <laughs> where'd it go? I missed it. So that's where all of this is pointing to us, is a deep, ever-deepening level of not clinging, of opening to the experience of our lives. It doesn't mean that we don't care about anything. And someone brought this up last time. Well, doesn't this, couldn't this lead kind of to some kind of indifference? Because if you're just totally in harmony with everything and you're sitting there and you don't care and you're so let go, non-clinging is not indifference. And this is another important point I want to bring up from last time. It's not indifference. Non-clinging, and I don't know why this is true. I can't tell you why. But I can, and many others can attest to this. As we start to let go, which means as we start to be more fully present, we actually find ourselves, there's some kind of deep compassion and care that naturally arises. I don't know why it's true, but it is. Many people find that to be true. Now, it's possible to use meditation and, and, it's, and aloofness or detachment is a near enemy of equanimity. Because it can ma- a near enemy means it's, if you're not looking carefully, it can look like it and it can mask as it, but it's not the same thing. Detachment actually has a little aversion in it mixed in there that we don't see sometimes. Well, you know, I'm just not going to let this feeling get to me or this heartache or this, all this unpleasant or this pleasant, you know, not that equanimity. But a real equanimity is fully, deeply open to everything. We actually experience our lives fully, more fully, anyway. But we're, and at the same time, we're less jerked around by it. So that our peace and our happiness, if you will, is coming naturally from a deeper place that's less dependent on circumstances. If our happiness is dependent upon circumstances, well then, I mean, think about it. Life is all over the place and we are not going to stop trying to create our lives to be how we want it to be. Nobody's saying you have to do that. Right? That wouldn't make much sense. But in the process of creating our lives to be how it's going to be, the old cliche, you get what you get. So in the moment, what are you going to do with get what you get? To the extent you're going to struggle with it, you suffer, that's all. You know, it's not that big of a deal, we all suffer. To the extent we're able to be free in the moment, fully engaged in connecting, to that extent we're not suffering. And there is something deeper, that liberation, that just the Dharma reveals itself. So, coming to terms, looking deeply into this truth of impermanence starts to naturally loosen our clinging. If I'm looking in the mirror, you know, and and yeah, I'm seeing impermanence, but I'm not liking it and I'm freaking out because, you know, about whatever, where did my youth go? There's still, I'm seeing impermanence, but the level of non-attachment hasn't caught up yet. 
to the extent that you can come to peace with the process, then you see it's okay. It's not bad. When you walk in the woods and you see a rotting log, do you cry over that? That was a little sprout and then it was a sapling and it grew to this mighty tree. It was beautiful. And then it got old and diseased and eventually fell over and no problem. It's just causes and conditions going their natural business. So we talked about this a lot last time and we're going to, I think what I want to do is just, um, do one reading here and then we can open up for a little discussion and then we'll start to move over into the next contemplation of dukkha. So let me read something. This book is called The Life of Shabkar. Shabkar lived in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. He was a Tibetan yogi and he wrote his autobiography. So he wrote this. And this is well known among and beloved among uh, Tibetan Buddhists. And um, see, here's here's um, impermanence right now. They say I did a did pretty well to make it to 52 without needing reading glasses. I just got them last year. And yeah, they said that's pretty made it pretty far. You know, it just came within about two years. I used to be able to read now, and I didn't bring them tonight. I'm noticing like I've got it about down there. It's just you know, I can't read now. Where'd my vision go? It just changed. So, uh, Shabkar says he was um, walking in a meadow up in the mountains and he saw uh, this particular flower gave him a teaching. So, this is the teaching of the flower. I, the flower, will now give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice on death and on impermanence. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom, surrounded by an eager cloud of bees. I dance gaily, swaying gently in the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me. When the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now I look well enough, but I won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull these vivid colors till turning brown I wither. Thinking of this, I am disturbed. Later still, winds, violent, merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. When I think about this, I am seized with fear. You, hermit, are of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. When others praise you, you dance with joy. When faithful patrons turn up, you sit in a dignified manner. When they shower you with lavish food, you smile with satisfaction. Right now, you look well enough, but you won't last long. Not at all. Unwelcome aging will steal away your health and vigor. Your hair will whiten. Your back will grow bent. Just thinking about it, don't you feel chastened? When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the, la- for the next life. Just thinking about it, aren't you seized with fear? And then I'm going to skip over and he says, Of all the activities of samsara, the word samsara, it, it, the word means wandering, but it's the word for conditioned reality. Of all the activities of samsara, there is not one thing that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. Whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows, even now in the full glory of my display. So we'll leave it at that Now, people hear teachings like that and, you know, it's kind of, gee, you know, (laughs) I don't want to hear that. 
We don't want to spend all our time focusing on this. We'd be out of balance if we did that. That's another important thing. If, you, if you're just always just obsessed with it, you know, then already there can be some aversion that comes in. This is useful to the extent that it helps us just to, just to come face to face with reality. It's useful to the extent that it informs how we live. That's what it's all about. Does it inform how we live our lives? So that a lot of what we put so much of our effort into when we really realize the fact of impermanence and death, hopefully it informs the quality of how we live. Because if it's, if, if, if it's done its job right, the quality of our life is better. We're actually, we're not bummed out about it. We're not, we're, we're not crying over it. Now, I don't know if we get to the point where we're completely free from it, but we're heading in that direction is what we're talking about. Right? So that's the important part to keep in mind is, is reflecting, reflecting on impermanence informing how I'm living my life today? Because as we let go, even a lot of things that we maybe have a lot of fears about maybe can start to soften and free us up in how we proceed and act in life. There's many ways it can uh, inform our lives. Does anybody want to say anything? Or it could be a question or comments. Yeah. Well, how about uh, clinging, say, in that situation of uh, a vow? A vow? Where you make a marriage vow. Yeah. Well, I don't actually see that as a form of claim. I guess it could. I would say that's getting more to that near enemy thing. That to me, a vow, there's something really noble. And a vow that comes out of a clear mind. That's clearly looking at what I choose to take on, what's skillful, right? what's useful, what's helpful. And that calls us to live towards the higher. So, for example, a marriage vow is, is a great example. And I'll just make up an example here. Um, say... You're married and, um, you know, it's easy to then find other interesting potential partners out there that might tempt us, right? Well, to the extent that um, we're maybe not as mindful as we could be or that we're, that's one thing, where we're just not seeing what's going on and we get caught, but also to the extent that we just allow our emotions and our desires to drag us around by the nose, we may act in ways that cause suffering for ourselves and for others that we would regret. So to me, I don't see it as clinging to respect a vow in full acknowledgement of there are these other pulls here. So if that interesting potential partner's there, I can acknowledge that. I can feel the feelings of it. I don't have to push that away or pretend that it's not there. And I can choose what I'm going to do. And that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, we, there's not a time to end a relationship. Right? That's not breaking a vow, but that's done out of, you want to do it out of a skillful, awake, clear place. Right? So the more we're awake, the more we're mindful, which is saying, the less we're just in reaction and on automatic pilot, then the more we'll make choices that um, um, move us, I don't know if this is a Buddhist way to say it, but move us in a positive direction, move us toward the light. Reflections on impermanence, it's a, partic- it's, it's a perfect way to, it's a great point. If we just using this example, I don't you know, it's just the one that popped in my head. If there's some interesting looking potential partner out there that I've got to have, well, maybe reflecting on old age, sickness, and death in myself and in this interesting person out there, you know, what are they going to be like in 20, 30 more years, might also be wise and skillful reflection to help inform whatever actions I take, right? 
could be. I think the important point of all this is all we have is our thoughts, our speech, our actions. We all want to have less suffering and more happiness, but so often we think, it's not so easy to control our thoughts, but we think, act, and speak in ways nobody's consciously trying to create more suffering, but we all end up to some degree, I know I've created lots of suffering in my life when I look back and I just think, you know, what was I, what was I doing? But, you know, at the time, because I was caught up in it, I couldn't see clearly. Well, so, well, that is clinging, yeah. Don't you think so? Yeah. Now, it's kind of tricky because, look, so I'm married. Um, yeah, I have some expectations of my partner. So I think that's kind of conventional everyday reality. On the one hand, I'm not a therapist here, so I have to be a little careful, how, you know, but, it's not, but uh, so I'm stumbling along as much as everybody else in this, but yeah, sure, we have expectations. It gets back down to what do you do with you get what you get? So that other the partner may or may not live up to our expectations. Um, I'm certainly not in a place in my life that if my there's certain basic expectations that could be easy to think of that could cause a lot of pain and suffering. So I don't know what it's like if you're a Buddha. You know, he, he wasn't in these kind of relationships. But I think for most of us, as we're trying to get freer. You know, I, I don't know if people get to a point where you're just so beyond it all uh, that you're not at the effect of anything. So um, we have to be realistic about it. And I think, sure, if your spouse cheated on you or you cheated on a spouse and had remorse and, you know, I can look back on my life and I've not always been the most skillful probably and when I was younger and that may be true for, you know, in a group this size, um, there's definitely a certain number of us here, there's no doubt about it, who have done things that have caused regret or been on the receiving end. And You know, um, we have to look into ourselves and how we act and hopefully we can learn and have some healthy remorse for those things on that side. And on the receiving end of it, um, you know, that's a tough one. Is celibate? Is what? Ostensibly. In certain, it depends on the tradition. Theravada monks are supposed are celibate. Because maybe there is a reason why they choose not to enter into a vow. Right, definitely, because it's diff, it's hard to be in relationship, and so it's real hard to be in relationship. Right, I mean you don't need me to say that, and um, so they don't hang out around the women much. They try to just be around the men and stay, you know, and I'm not even getting into things about homosexuality or anything like that. There's just, I'm sure it's all very complex, but that's the basic idea that you don't want to start to stir up all those energies because they're very powerful. We need to honor how powerful they are. Right? They're real powerful. And it's real easy to start Tumbling down, you know, and next thing you know, a lot of powerful energy is flowing. It's real easy. All I can say about it is that, you know, in any situation, I mean, some, you know, it's, it's hard to say what's right or wrong. All I know is for any situation, the more awake we are, the less reactive, the more conscious we are, the greater our chances of acting out of a deeper, more skillful place is. And that includes when someone else does something that we interpret as, that, that has hurt us or let us down. I don't know what the right way to act is. You know, this is getting into tricky territory and it's very complex, as we all know. But to the extent we have more equanimity and more clarity, hopefully we'll act I don't know. You just led right into it, what I was 
was thinking, and um, when I think about attachments and clinging in my own life, um, a lot of the examples you gave earlier were, you know, what we would deem natural process or, or what, and it seems to me like in my experience that the stumbling blocks come when there's intent behind an action. And that's where I'm, that's where I struggle. Like I was thinking, you know, so many thousands of people die because of lung cancer or car accidents or whatever. And um, the number of people killed by terrorists is so small, and yet that's where we have a, this huge reaction to it. And I think there's a certain amount of acceptance of some types of suffering huh. and others, in, in my experience, where there's intent behind it, it's a lot harder to yeah. Well, and that is an interesting place. I mean, this would be a whole topic of discussion. I don't know the answers on it, but just what you're bringing up. I mean, it is true. If I think in myself, if um, something happened, but no one was, you know, that caused some difficulty to me, like the wind blew a, blows a tree and say it smashes on my house, you know, that's not good. And yeah, my house is smashed. What can you do? The wind blew the tree. That's a little different than if I had a pissed off neighbor who got a chainsaw and saw the tree down so it would smash on my house, right? That's a little different. Actually, it brings up this, um, this must come out, it sounds so Zen, it must be a Zen story, but it's uh, talking about the example of if you're on a lake or a river and you're, Amaro might have talked about this in his book, um, uh, is it Great Mountain Small Boat or, you know, his book on uh, Dzogchen? Anyway, if you're on a paddling around out in a canoe or a river and say another boat comes and rams into you, you know, it might be first reaction typically might be, you know, hey, what's what's that person doing? And, you know, idiot. And don't you see me here? And and then if you notice that, oh, there was no one in the boat and it was just it just drifted over all that anger might dissipate. Now, the point of that story is two. One is about our reactions to the other, but it's also talking about make our boat empty and then no one will oppose you in the world. Meaning, not coming from that place of reactivity, caught in things, and it gets into what we're going to talk about next time about the real tough teaching for many people about no self Right, kind of letting that go a little, and just coming from a just a place of openness, then your way of being in harmony with life is uh, it's just like I'm going to read again what I read last time from Ajahn Chah. where he says, I read this last week. He says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So that's where he's kind of pointing to. Well... So we'll start on the second characteristic, dukkha. We only have a few minutes here. Um, it's very much tied in with the first characteristic of impermanence. You know, none of these are very sunny, happy kind of things here, right? Impermanence. Dukkha is basically saying that, yes, there's suffering in the world, and we all know that. We don't have to look very far to know about suffering. But it's actually saying everything is dukkha. The best, happiest experience that you ever have had in your life or could ever imagine having is dukkha because of the first characteristic, impermanence. So we like impermanence when we're suffering. Because it means this bad old suffering is going to go away. Now, if we've got some chronic condition, maybe it doesn't seem like it's going to go away. That's a whole different kind of discussion. 
But in general, things are coming and going. But we don't like impermanence when things are the way we want them. Right? And depending on each of our lives, we have a mix of pleasant, unpleasant, right? Happiness or suffering. Some of us have a lot more of one than the other. So it depends on each person's life. But most of us have some kind of mix. That's the way life is. That's what the real teaching of Dukkha is talking about, is, is that, that there is no experience we can have that's ultimately going to do it for us. And a good way to think about that is, I mean, I'm a perfect person. I, I used to, in my younger days, I was, uh, did a lot of mountain climbing. I was a very active rock climber. And when I was young, I just used to look forward to that next weekend to go on this particular climb we were going to do. And we were all with my buddies and we were just, that's just all I was thinking, looking forward to it. And then we came and we did it and then it was gone. And, I mean, just gone. And, you know, looking back on those things now, I mean, you know, I get some pleasure in the, you know, I think back and have some nice memories, but all that stuff's gone. You know, you look forward to it and then you have the experience and then it's gone. And, you know, the way that I've heard it talked about, it's back there with the dinosaurs and the pyramids and, you know, the best experience that we're looking for. Did it do it for us? Even if we got some pleasure, even if we look back on it with happy memories, we think that that promise of happiness that it's going to give us And we see over and over that it doesn't do that. But the mind keeps falling for it over and over. Again, looking for that next great experience that's going to do it for us. Right? We all do this to some extent. And it doesn't mean we don't get satisfaction and some happiness in the moment. It just means ultimately it's not going to do it for us. At some point... If nothing else, at the time of death, you know, that stuff's all gone. So once again, it doesn't mean we don't enjoy the good stuff. It's not what it's saying. You can do that. Pleasant experiences aren't going to stop being pleasant. But they're also not going to stop being dukkha. Because they don't stick around. Right? So... Just one second. So to the, 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 you can see real clearly it comes back to this whole thing of non-clinging. So that if you can just enjoy like that, that great weekend that you have planned or whatever it is, totally enjoy it. And then when it's gone, let it be gone and be back, be present with our lives. If we're looking forward to something in the future, that's all right. As experienced in the moment, that experience is an experience of looking forward to the future. We just want to know that that's what's happening. But to the extent we're holding on and we've got to have the experience look some certain way, to the extent we don't get it, we suffer. So once again, it's around learning to not cling. That's the bottom line to all this. How does seeing that things are not going to do it for us ultimately, how does that inform our lives? So that we have more peace, more happiness, less suffering. That's what it's about. Did you want to, did I? I I just happened to read something that pointed toward a particular teaching that you gave on suffering where he made a very clear statement that I found very helpful, which is that the impermanence of the experience is not the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is the mental construct that we have that it's going to last. Right. And it's going to be ultimately satisfactory. That is the cause of yeah, suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we can see this deeply. And in meditation, you can get more and more to places where that, that's one of the, the uh, what meditation is, one aspect of what it's for, is to see ever more deeply and subtly into impermanence and to see ever more deeply and subtly into dukkha. The idea being then that there's a natural letting go that happens. Now, what often happens is we start to contemplate these things, and as I said earlier, our level of seeing into it 
gets ahead of the level to which we were not clinging. And there's even extra suffering that comes. But that's the time when you don't want to quit because you want to let it. You need to pop out the other side. And it's in that deeper letting go that that inner happiness in the midst of these, these, these don't change. Right? But we, we get more happy because we know that we're not holding on to things. So we're not at the effect of things so much. It's really very free. I mean, think about how much energy it takes trying to keep everything all set up in some certain way. It's really hard work. It's very stressful. Depending on the particular circumstance, it's hard. Right? If we hold it a little bit lighter, that's all that's being asked. You don't still you can still try to keep things together, but hold it a little lighter, it's a real relief. Think how much of our time uh, we're in fear or some kind of aversion to either some real difficult situation or some perceived or worry about some possible difficult situation. That's a lot of suffering right there. To the extent we start to let go around it, we're suffering less. It's very, very simple. So we're running out of time and next week we're going to continue on this and then also, we need to talk about, for those of you who will be here, about the third characteristic, which is um, uh, no self. That's the, and see if we can really get, get a handle on what that is, because it turns out, you know, most people hear that, that doesn't sound so great either. It's like you're just going to go poof and not exist. That's not what it's saying. And, of course, we all know that we do exist, right? We're here, right? Every, every, you Right. So we need to explore that. I'll just read one last thing to lead us, leave us with. You may want to contemplate on on the during the week um, about dukkha. Once again, this is not leaving us kind of on a happy thought, but it's just bringing up kind of putting it in our face about dukkha to contemplate for the week. This is from Tulku Urgen Rinpoche, who died a few years ago, but a very highly respected Dzogchen, a a, a Tibetan teacher. He says, When we look at others from afar, they may appear to have happiness, prestige, friends, and wealth. But when we get closer, we see that they are not very happy and their situation is not ideal. There is always something to complain about. And when we get very close and examine their inner feelings, each person has his own set of worries and carries his own burden around with him. No one is in perfect happiness. So we can just kind of... So it's exactly 9 o'clock. If you need to walk out the door, please do. Don't feel weird about it, but I'm going to take a minute or two to do just to end with some loving-kindness practice. I promise to keep it very short, and if you need to leave, please do. Um, So uh, I invite you just to, if you have not been connected back into the body or whatever your experience is, just to take a moment to reconnect. just bring the mindful awareness back into the body, to the mind and just see what's going on. Maybe some things that were said um, brought up some difficult feelings around these, you know, challenging topics of impermanence and dukkha and no self. So just to connect with those feelings, you don't have to push them away if they're if they're difficult. Or if there's pleasant feelings or neutral but to see if if we can hold those feelings with a lot of acceptance. One way to think of this practice, these are not the words of the Buddha, but it can really be thought of a a practice of deep and radical self-acceptance is one way to think of this practice. 
without the judgment and the criticism or thinking there's something wrong or that we're not good enough or okay or whatever, just allowing ourselves to open to the full experience of who and what we are. And if we're not able to do that for some reason, to notice that and to see if we can have some acceptance for that. And then to actually send some loving kindness towards ourselves, which you don't have to have a feeling of loving kindness. It may just be a thought or some words or a wish or a prayer. It can be very simple. Just just a phrase such as, may I be happy. Just wishing that for yourself. And may I be Peaceful. May I be free from suffering. And then we can turn that same thoughts towards everyone here in the room and actually even spreading out further into the whole community and the world. Radiating this loving kindness or perhaps just that prayer, that wish, that thought May all beings everywhere be happy and be peaceful and be free from suffering. And then finally, to end with this prayer from the Metta Sutta, from the Buddha. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, Wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So as one teacher said to me once after giving the talk on dukkha, it's all dukkha. Have a nice day.